<clears throat> quaint and stubborn. I was trying to find two words. I've been thinking over two ideas, and I wanted the right word to hang on each one. To capture how it stands between that idea and the spirit of our age. Both our ideas are ones that you're used to hearing here in church, but almost nowhere else. One has to do with us, the other has to do with God, and both have to do with Christ. And the words took their sweet time coming. I try one after the other. Puzzling and curious were too flat. Far-fetched and audacious were too windy. There were some more other, other words that didn't fly. And then while I was brushing my teeth, I got my words. Quaint and stubborn. Let's start with quaint. In relation to the spirit of our age, in other words, all those things that we just tend to take for granted, here in church we hold on to a quaint idea about what it means to be a human being which is that we are made in the image of God. In the back of your prayer book, on page 845, you don't have to look, but you might if you want to, you will find an informative section called an, the Outline of the Faith. It's in question and answer format, and so, it, for example, it starts like this, a question, what are we by nature? Answer, we are part of God's creation made in the image of God. Made in the image of God, you and me and Kim Jong-un. You see how I came up with puzzling and audacious. It sounds like we have a very high opinion of our cosmic status. And this sits in an odd relation to another story that we all know and that we tend to take for granted. And according to this other story, such an high opinion is a relic of a pre-scientific imagination. The story goes that humankind has now grown up to realize that in the cosmic scheme, we are of very little consequence at all. Yes, we once imagined that our Earth sits at the center of the universe, but Copernicus changed that. Yes, we once had reason to believe that our species is unique, set apart, and over all the rest, but Darwin changed that. We thought we were reasonable, then came Freud. We thought we were nice, then came Nietzsche and Marx. We all know that story, and in whole or part, we believe some of it. Some of us may believe all of it. And then we come to church, and we hear ourselves described as the crown and center of creation. You have made us but a little lower than the angels. You adorn us with glory and honor. Psalm 8. That's quaint. And now this is stubborn. This is another one from the outline of the faith. Question. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the only son of God? Answer. We mean that Jesus is the only Picture, perfect picture of the Father. So there are images, you and me and John Q. Public, and then there's the image, Jesus Christ. is the perfect Son. He is the perfect picture, the true likeness of the Father. He is the image, Paul writes, of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It turns out that this quaint idea 
that we have about ourselves as something special, as creatures made by God in God's own image, derives from and rests on this other idea that we have about this certain person in particular who lived at a particular specific place at a definite time and who at that time and in that place showed the world the human face of God. Our understanding of ourselves as the image of God is derivative from that. That's the idea, and the word for it is stubborn. Why? Because the idea that Jesus Christ is God from God and light from light persistently resists the constant efforts to retire it. The urge to retire it is nothing new. I think of Thomas Jefferson taking scissors to his New Testament, cutting out the parts that made Jesus out as something more than a splendid man and an intriguing teacher. I saw the Jefferson Bible all cut up at the Smithsonian. What Jefferson tried has been going on in some form or fashion for centuries. Last month was the 15th anniversary of the publication of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. By the second day that The Da Vinci Code was on the bookshelves, it seemed like everyone I knew had read it. And as the plot unfolds, we find that the Catholic Church has covered up the truth that Jesus was married, he had married Mary Magdalene, and they'd had kids whose descendants had included kings of France and a certain character in the Da Vinci Code. As I recall, somehow it was thought that Jesus's having had children would have disproved his divinity. Not sure how that added up, but there it was. Now, there is no denying that historically and theologically Jesus can be interpreted in a variety of ways. That is the grain of truth that speculators like Dan Brown can trade on. It is a fact that history, even recent history, is elusive. In ancient history, even more. Um, this will only apply to those of you who are close to my age or older, but do you remember the old mercury thermometers? We would put them in our mouth, and it would take three minutes to find out if you were, had a fever and would have to go to school or not. Um, actually, I still need to use one of those because I have, can't figure out how to make the modern computer the, uh, thermometers work. But if you dropped your mercury thermometer on the bathroom floor, it would break, and the mercury would fall out. And whatever you did, you were supposed to not touch the mercury, which I always did. And you, I would try to pinch it between my fingers, and you would pinch it, and it would, it would come apart in your fingers. It might break into pieces, but you couldn't hold it. Historical study is like that. Even recent history, you, you pick it up, and you think, well, it means one thing. Well, it never means just one thing. You can always make it mean an almost infinite variety of things. History's like that. It won't stay there for us. This is partly about facts because they're hard to pin down, but it's mostly about interpretation because our understanding of the past is, in the nature of the case, always going to be an open-ended conversation. However, that does not mean that when it comes to writing history, there are no constraints on what we can write with a claim on truth. And most of Dan Brown's particular suggestions were never taken seriously by professional historians for many good reasons. But the theological interpretation of the historical particulars about the life of Jesus has always been and always will be debatable. 
We notice that not all the world is Christian. The gospel does not compel the belief to the degree that math, science, and logic sometimes do. The gospel does, though, invite belief. And it does support belief. And that's what's stubborn about it. What's stubborn is that the church's claim on truth is actually quite strong. There are good reasons why Christianity did not sink into oblivion with the rise of science. Reasons quite apart from the force of religious habit. It's the darndest thing that there are certain facts and not a small number that hold up this claim. There is powerful historical evidence that Jesus, get this, rose from the dead. Of course, the evidence can be explained in other ways. But if you are an historian, and if you would prefer not to be driven to conclude that the Jesus crucified Jesus died and then returned to life, then you've got some real problems in explaining the evidence in front of you. So your safest play will be to take it as a given that resurrections just don't happen, or that the consideration of such a possibility just doesn't belong to the realm of history. Moreover, there is abundant evidence that the earliest Christians recognized and worshipped the risen Christ as God. That's another thing that Dan Brown brought up. He said that that, that belief came much later and was kind of imposed by the authority of the church centuries after uh, Christ. That just doesn't match the record. There is evidence in Paul and Mark and Luke and Matthew as well as John that the witness of Christians from the first was that in Jesus they had met God. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known, said John. That theme is, runs throughout the New Testament. When C.S. Lewis was a young and committed atheist, he and one of his teachers were discussing old religious myths of gods taking human form. The teacher, who was also an atheist, mused a bit and he chuckled. It's a rum thing. It almost looks as though it happened once. Later in life, Lewis came to believe that it had happened. As Lewis put it, he was surprised by joy. So you approach the door of faith expecting it to be locked by science or history. And you try the door handle and you find a surprise, you're surprised that it isn't locked at all. It turns easily. And now this is odd. The door seems to open from the inside and invite you in. And so there you are, poised at the threshold of the open possibility that you are, in fact, made in the image of God. Question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Here's a clue. doesn't mean that we think that God has opposable thumbs. It means, the prayer book says, that we are free to make choices, to love, to create, to reason, and to live in harmony with creation and with God. That answer isn't bad, but we can find an even richer explanation deep in our tradition. Two great mystical theologians, Augustine and John of the Cross, identified the image of God in us through the doctrine of the Trinity. Today is Trinity Sunday. The image of God in us, they said, is three in one and one in three. 
We know God as Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. And realizing that the whole of God abides in each of those parts. The Father and the Spirit dwell within the Son. The Son and the Father dwell within the Spirit. And so it goes. The, the word for that in Greek is perichoresis. From peri, which means to go round around, and choreo, which means to make room for. The Father makes room for the Spirit and the Son. So Augustine wondered, what is there in us that is three in one and one in three? Well, Here's something our minds are. He thought about that and he concluded that we carry the image of the divine trinity and the relationship between our memory, our understanding, and our will. So think of something. Think of your first crush. Everybody got it? Your first crush. Somebody's saying, well, it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> well, think about that. <laughs> uh, so... What happened in the moment when you brought that person to mind? Your understanding of what a crush is and your will to bring it to mind landed on a memory. Augustine said that that relationship between understanding and will and memory is a reflection of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in us it's the it's the image of god in form and he all our thoughts according to augustine are composed of those three distinct but inseparable components our every thought reflects the holy trinity he said our purpose as a church as saint john of the cross taught us is to position ourselves to receive the motions of the holy spirit and when and as that happens, the three-in-one in us is changed. Our intellect, our understanding, is filled with faith, our memory with hope, and our will with love. So it is that in the likes of you and me and everyone on earth, the Father breathes the Spirit through the Son, and the image of God in us is stirred to life.